Hello and welcome to Three at the Back, the football analytics podcast from Opta Pro. I'm Ryan Byer and I'll be your host for this episode. We're back for the first time in a little while. I'm delighted to introduce our two guests for today. First up, we have Ben McCrill, head of Opta Pro. Ben, great to have you with us. Always a pleasure. Good to be back. And I'm going to start with a quick fire question just to get you on your toes. Uh, Premier League player which has impressed you most this season and why? And you obviously can't say Virgil van Dijk or Raheem Sterling. <laughs> so I'm going to be really biased and go with a Welsh player. Um, not just because he really impressed in the Euro uh, games of the week, but uh, David Brooks, uh, Bournemouth. Um, I think having a young player like that adapt to the league so quickly has, has been really impressive. Um, you know, creative players coming into the Prem, whether they're from... Uh, European leagues um, or when they come up from the championship that's often one of the hardest things is to continue to be that creative player and he's done incredible, incredibly well for Bournemouth obviously playing in a in a nice system but in a team that certainly recently has struggled and um, you know, other than the result of the weekend I think they would have been in the mire so you know and again looking at his data you know he ranks in the top 10 in a lot of really key statistics so for attacking midfielders attacking wide players he's top top 10 in uh, sequences that end in goals and sequences that end in shots. He's uh, scored five goals this season. One of the interesting ones for me, you know, he's a very progressive player, passes forward, um, you know, in the top 10 of, of attacking players. So even in that final third position, he's constantly looking to play forward. And I think you've seen that in, in the sort of dynamic uh, play that he's had, uh, certainly sort of the second half this season. So he'd be my player. Excellent choice. And joining Ben today is our OptiPro Head of Football Intelligence, Miguel Rios. Miguel joins us from Wolverhampton Wanderers, where he held a senior scouting position. Miguel, it's great, great to have you on board, not only for the pod, but for the wider OptiPro. Uh, and to get started, um, first question, Premier League player, and who's, uh, who's impressed you the most and why? Thanks for having me on here. Um, player I've chosen is James Madison at Leicester. Again, he's um, similar to, to Brooks, where he's stepped up from playing in the lower league and... As, as the transition has been seamless overall um, this season, um, his creativity has been excellent. He's probably created the most goal-scoring chances, um, definitely in the Premier League, and I'd even think across Europe, uh, with the number of chances he's given Leicester. Also, I'd, I'd look at his free kicks, his direct free kicks. I believe it's three direct free kicks he scored in the line, in a single campaign. So for him, me, he's the player that I think has is, is impacted it the best for me. Right, so you both went for two attacking players that have come up from the championship that are doing well. Basically, two of the same minds. <laughs> so um, we'll get started. Miguel, could you could you share a bit more about about your career? A lot of, a lot of um, listeners will have come into contact with you, but a lot won't know. So if you just share a bit about not only Wolves but sort of beyond that as well. Okay, so I started my um, my football career um, in academy football. I worked at Barcelona Soccer School as a coach, using um, my English to coach there with um, both on soccer camps and coaching some players that need assisting in sessions, helping coaches with the English, um, with players from abroad. Spent a lot of time there watching sessions at the Messia, the old Messia, and learning basically. That's, that's the biggest thing for me. Moved on to Arsenal, their academy coaching there. From there, I switched to more of a recruitment and scouting role, looking after um, an area of London for them, where I then progressed on to going to Brentford and worked there for a number of years in the academy where I then transitioned into first team recruitment. From then moved into um, a European scouting role 
at Fulham, spent a couple of seasons there, and my last roles at Wolves again as a, as a European scout, looking at first-team football players across Europe for them. Good stuff. And you've mentioned, obviously, experiences at Barcelona, academy level, first-team level, um, both domestic and overseas. So I'd imagine you've experienced quite a lot of different football cultures. For me, the biggest impact, especially working in Spain and in Academy Football Spain and in the UK, is the teaching element at Barcelona. It's a teaching element that coaches are focused on teaching rather than taking a session and coaching a session. Um, in Academy Football, I find a lot of coaches will take the session and deliver a session across the syllabus. Um, in the scouting world, the, the Premier League and Championship League One clubs have a lot more scouts who watch a lot more games on video and live and use data and analytics to progress and validate the recruitment um, in Spain much less. There's less of a focus on, on the data and analytics to identify players, but also in-game analysis as well. And have you found that when you've been in Spain, for example, you've been watching a game and you've been speaking with scouts as well at the same game, is it similar areas that you're both looking at? Is there perhaps uh, different values that different scouts will hold and, and so on? I think this all boils down to the club you work for where it, it depends on your playing style. So uh, a lot of um, Spanish teams, for example, Portuguese teams, are possession-based. So they'll look less at the physical attributes. In Germany, for example, they'll, they'll probably focus a little bit more on, on the, the physical attributes and tactical attributes as well. Um, working for a Premier League Championship club, you'll look at different areas of the game. So are the players at a physical level to play and compete in the Premier League or the Championship or even League One? And Ben, you've obviously, from your time at clubs, you've been at clubs that have a clear philosophy, playing framework and have been able to, to employ that fairly successfully. Have you found that similar in terms of perhaps what you look for on scouting trips has been perhaps very far removed from what other cultures have been, been engaged with perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think... <coughs> I think I might have said this before on this on this podcast that one of the things I noticed um, the most when I've been out and spent time with uh, with other clubs, um, you know, sat with a scout from a, a, another European club at a game in Germany or a game in Spain, was always that the um, the definition of certain positions or certain roles are often different. We might call it the same thing. You know, the, the one I use all the time is the the six eight ten in midfield. Those three positions mean something very different to even us in England compared to what those roles are for a Spanish player or for a German player. And often you could talk to a player about the role that he's going to fulfill within your club and within your playing philosophy. And actually, he could misinterpret what you're, what you're asking him to do because it's a completely different role to the one that he's fulfilled in his team. And all you're doing is using the same word for, for two different concepts. So that was one of the things that I learned very quickly was understanding different terminology for the same idea. And that, that comes in quite nicely to the next point I've got on because there's, I wanted to sort of flip it and say, is it the same experience with managers, coaches that have come from different backgrounds, cultures, Working it in that context as well, does that have the same same connotations, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, it can often cause the same problems, is that, you know, you talk to a manager about his football philosophy and he can use a certain terminology or a certain way of describing what he wants to do. But actually, that can get misinterpreted by the players or, or even by his support staff as to what he's trying to achieve. Uh, I had um, two managers at the same club um, who, one wanted to... One used a certain terminology for playing balls into a channel, 
uh, and that being a way to outlet pressure. And then the new manager came in, had a very similar concept and a very similar idea, but used a completely different terminology. And it took a while for everyone to realize that actually we were talking about this, trying to achieve the same thing. Um, and they were two British managers, actually. You know, it wasn't even two uh, managers from different countries. So even within the same country, and you can have very different uh, concepts or different terminology for the same idea. And have you have you found that working with um, working with a range of different scouts that you know are based in different in territories as well? Have you seen that where there has to be that that process and that structure of a collective language? Definitely, I think when when you look at players um, and you look at their decisions on the ball um, and even decisions off the ball, it's all dependent one on, on the team style, league style, and even their co- instructions from a coach. So. It's, it's it's easy making um, a decision if a player's at the level you need or is a player's good enough just on, on a single variable and a single single action he does on the ball. But I think you need to look at it as a collective. So the way he distributes the ball out, out of the defend, out of defence, does he look to play out and, and hit a centre forward on the grounds or in the air? So each team has a different style. It doesn't matter the league. You'll have different types of teams in all the leagues. So I think it's... It's, it's relatively common, but you could probably bucket it around team styles rather than countries, I think. And I think that's, that's something that a lot of people, probably myself included, can sort of fall into a trap of in terms of grouping leagues together because it's convenience, whereas a top six in different territories probably got more in common than across a whole competition. Yeah, and as you said before, it often comes down to managerial choices and managerial styles. And I think we're sort of away from this, this concept now of leagues being a, playing a certain way you know like you look inside even if you look at home you know look inside the Premier League how many vastly different styles of play and different approaches to the game there are within our own league you then can extrapolate that to other competitions and I think one of the things that um, that scouting certainly gives you is the ability to assess that in a way that I, th- I think with data we're, we're getting closer to be able to, to kind of analyse league styles or trends within leagues that are particularly stylistic, whether that's the speed of the ball movement, the style of pressing, those types of things that we're really starting to get a grips of being able to quantify now. Up until this point, we've needed to rely on scouts to be able to provide us that information. And, uh, you know, as Miguel said, is a lot about trying to align the terminology and, and have a glossary of terms that are things that we all know this is what it means, when we see this in a report or when we grade a player or you know, grade a team's style of play or choices that they make in a certain way, if we compare that across other uh, reports, it's going to be the same. And, and that's a concept that as data people, we know is, is vital in terms of the way that we collect data and, and the terminology and the, the definitions for a metric need to be consistent. Otherwise, we can't make the comparisons. It's the same in scouting. And I always look at it in the, t- in the sense of um, first team performances. Um, they're usually measurable around the quality of the team, um, of, of the group of players. But there's exceptions to that when teams are playing at different levels, which makes the player play at a different level as well. So that that's where it looks, it makes it look really interesting. And you assess it more: is it the quality of the coach that's improving the player? Is it the coaching is coaching staff? And even is it a match preparation behind it? Has he changed, or has the, has the coach changed it for that particular player to, to take him to a different level? I mean, you look at, we talked about David Brooks at the start, like he's an interesting example coming from Sheffield United and 
and you know you would say even in the championship now they're doing incredibly well you know fighting for promotion you wouldn't say that Sheffield United and Bournemouth are in the same bracket in terms of the way they play yet Brooks has gone into the Premier League gone into a possession-based attacking style of play and has done incredibly well and has been a real threat so again you've got to balance that of it's not always about where the players come from and that he can only play a certain style. One of the biggest challenges in scouting is how do you look at a player and say, he could do this role. He's not doing it in this game. He's not doing it for this team, but he could do it somewhere else. That is incredibly difficult to do. That's where scouting is so important. But again, unless you align the definitions and the way you're looking at the game and try and get everybody on the same page, you are going to get 10 different people saying 10 different things. When you're watching games now, do you ever have your scouting hat back on and sort of think, yeah, this player is something that is perhaps a starter player that would work in another system? Is it is it hard to get Absolutely. out of that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've said to a lot of people, you know, my ability to watch a game as a fan has gone out the window after 10 years working in clubs. You, you, know, you can't watch the game in any other way now. It's almost impossible. So... Um, you, you find yourself watching the game sat in the stands where you're not working and you're still watching the shape, you're still watching off the ball movement, you're still watching those types of elements and that's just something that I think once it's ingrained in you, that's it. That's that's the end of the fun journey of watching ball. And that's one of the things I always look at a game and for me the last thing I look at is the ball Yeah. and you look in everything around it, players, their movement, where they've run into, where they've run out of, um, try and assess that and as a group, as a defensive line, where that is. Um, where the midfield line sh- um, shapes up against the opposition midfielder and you forget all that as a fan and you can't get away from that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite difficult for me as well. And it gets worse because then what you do now is you go and look at the data afterwards. You're supposed to be watching this game as a fan just you know, sat on your sofa and I'm grabbing my laptop to see how he ranks in certain categories against other players. That, that is how sad <laughs> your life gets after you've been in this game for, the, for a while. Yeah, I think the one that, and obviously I've not got anywhere near the experience that, that you guys have got, but you sort of think this thing's happened. Is there a way of quantifying that, measuring that, and are there different ways of going around or even proxying for that? It's sort of one that that I have tried that it does influence, you know, when you're in this in this world, it does sort of influence the way you watch the game, but I still fall into that trap of shouting shoot whenever a player gets to be about 30 <laughs> yards out. So I've still got that side of me, which I don't think is going anywhere. I think anybody listening to this and who's also watched your Twitter feed knows your <laughs> obsession with Ashley Young. No matter what data is against him, I'm sure you'd still offer him a new contract. We'll start season. talking about cross-completion data soon. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> so we spoke a bit about and maybe ranking league by league isn't, isn't perhaps the most effective way. You know, you've got teams in certain leagues that play similar styles and teams in different leagues that play very similar styles. If you could, and ignoring logistics aside, maybe uh, coordinate your scouts by position or unit, would you consider that? Would you, if you were, you know, head of recruitment at a club, technical director, how would you how would you frame that? I think that's quite hard initially because within a scouting process, you, you have to identify the talent first. So again, in each match, you're watching matches, so you're not watching players in certain positions. So I think that'd be quite difficult. I would think that's a good way. If you have um, identified your talent, is that a good way to validate validate your decision of having scouts who do cover one position, for example, fullback or centre forward, so that you're cross validating scout views. So I think that a good, it's potentially a good way, but not as having scouts position specific. Uh, but I feel you could potentially use that further down the scout the. The scouting process. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot to be said about going to that level of detail. I mean, in American football, particularly, 
you know, they, whether it's at the coaching level or actually the scouting level, they do go position specific. You know, they are, there is an offensive line scout who is just looking at offensive linemen and, and there is a quarterback guy just looking at quarterbacks. Now, obviously the, the games are very different, but, you know, the skill sets required to play different positions, you know, increasingly are bespoke, are very niche, are very challenging in certainly in the way that the game is evolving now. And although you're asking players to play a lot of different roles and responsibilities, you know, there is an argument to say that there should be that level of analysis. Now, you know, anyone sort of involved in the club world will know that if a scout identifies a, is asked to identify a goalkeeper, you will send your goalkeeping coach to go and watch him play. But we don't do that for any other position. We just do it for goalkeepers. Now, we know that that's a very different position on the pitch. But why don't we do that? For midfielders, why don't we do that for creative players? Why don't we do that for centre backs? So it is an interesting thing, but again, as you said, take logistics out. Unfortunately, you can't. And and the reality is, is that to hone down your list of identified targets, you have to have a a funneled process. You know, whatever that funnel process looks like, you've got to go from hundreds of thousands of possible players to one or two for each position. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's an interesting development, and I think. We are starting to see specialist coaches in the game now. Whether that then translates into specialist scouts, you know, depending on resources, I think that's an interesting, interesting concept. Good stuff, good stuff. And moving on, Miguel, you've been in recruitment roles at both first team level and academy development. Ben, you spoke recently at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference about the role of data in, in shaping future players. Could you tell us a bit about that initially and... Um, yeah, the role that you see data in sort of player development and player pathway. Yeah, it was it was a really fascinating topic, and you know, credit to the Sloan guys because you know often these conferences, you know, we obviously go to a lot. We we actually do our own events as well, and and it can be really difficult to not get really broad topic areas or not do the what's next in sport data analytics. And and to be fair to the Sloan guys, they came up with this really kind of uh, niche bespoke area to look at player development with um, with data. And, Very relevant one as well. And uh, Yeah, incredibly relevant. And, and I think, and particularly in that market, you know, particularly in North America where there's such an emphasis on on the huge population of youth soccer players um, who, you know, ultimately are getting missed or it's a, it's a massive country. How do you scout that many players? And US soccer have a fascinating process that we're, you know, heavily involved in. And, it is a data-driven one because how do you capture that size of country and that many youth soccer players on a regular basis? It's really difficult. So, yeah, it was a really good discussion and, and we had a lot of different perspectives on it as well. And I think ultimately from a data angle, there's a lot of challenges. You know, data like that isn't readily available. You know, we do a lot in, in certain places, but, you know, it's a real challenge to collect data on, on youth players. Then how do you make the comparisons? How do you project? How do you compare? One of the big topics we discussed at the conference was um, the challenge of comparing youth soccer from a stylistic perspective to how that reflects the first team football. And you know, Miguel will have watched as much, if not a lot more, youth football as I have. And ultimately, most youth football is very possession-based. You know, it's everybody wants to play the beautiful game in the way it was intended. If you then extrapolate that and translate that into first team football, that's not the case. You know, not everybody has that skill set. Not everybody has that technical uh, ability. So, from a data analysis perspective, how do you identify what matters in that youth data set 
and taking out and leveling out um, you know the fact that it's all possession based and try and translate that into can this player play a certain role in the future can he become a player that could play in the championship for example or um, you know or could play in in a certain European league you know, that's where the challenges are the data it was a really really good discussion from my point of view I always look at um, academy football and how do you measure um, quality um, of a player so do you look at his potential do you look at his player progression I think you need to look at both um, and to an extent you have to include performance in there even though that isn't the underlying factor because you need to have a, a measurable where you can compare that player against another player so that gets more difficult when you're measuring players or assessing players because you're looking at them um, they've got different physical maturities, mental maturities. I'd even go as far as saying some players are technically and tactically mature and mature. So, and that just depends on the number of games they've played. So, I think measuring academy football, as Ben said, is, is actually collecting the data and the vast amount of data you can collect and what is it comparable to. I mean, one of the challenges is obviously when you're developing a player or when you're developing a person in general, you know, whether you're a teacher in primary school or whether you're um, doing data analysis on academy footballers, ultimately the way that you learn is you do things again and again and again. You fail regularly, and then you you learn the skill and you're able to execute it. From a data analysis perspective, like if we do that on the first team player and he's constantly failing, we're not gonna, you know, it's not gonna look favourable, is it? So you almost have to analyse the data in a completely different way. Are the players making a lot of mistakes but are they continually trying like are they you know I I mentioned again David Brooks constantly passing the ball forward now he will give the ball away a lot by doing that he will ultimately do that but over time is he going to learn to drop the number of times he plays the ball forward but actually create more opportunities because he's picking the right pass that's a development thing and at 21 I think he is now he's got plenty of time to learn that we go further back in the development pathway when you're analysing a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old, they're going to make a lot of mistakes, which means their success rates or their conversion rates or their efficiencies are not going to be particularly high. doesn't mean they're a bad player. So, so again, to Miguel's point, that ability to understand and quantify quality at that level is completely different to doing it at senior level. And of course, you've got the challenge around their rate of development. You know, not, not every player is going to be first team ready at 16, 17, 18. Some are going to be 2021, as we've seen sort of fairly recently. Yeah, I mean, um, I was really fortunate when I started at Everton in 2007. You know, we had Ross Barkley, Jack Rodwell. You know, those guys are physical specimens and they were at 14, 15. You know, uh, Ross was absolutely dominating under 16 football at 14 because he was just physically better, stronger, quicker, faster than anyone else. Now, he's one that's gone, developed and become a very, very good Premier League player. Others will be in that situation and everyone will catch up and they'll bypass them. And and when they get to 17, 18, they're no longer the best player in the team. They're actually on the verge of being released. So, yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And is that something, Miguel, you've always had to sort of Keep in your mind, is that been one of the sort of key criteria in terms of academy scouting? Is this player technically great or technically looking like he's, he's going to develop into an excellent player or is it maybe a physical consequence of just being slightly more developed? When you look at any player, you look at why they're good, why they're achieving, why they're playing so well. It could be 
potentially they are physically um, at a better level than other players or they're quicker because they're physically more mature. But that doesn't mean they're bad players as as, as the example given Alpha from from Ross Barkley, he, yeah, he, he was physically excellent for his age and, and very mature, but he was actually a good player as well. So I think you, you have to assess and exactly know why he's good rather than say oh, it's because he, he's bigger and stronger than the others because there are players, Wayne Rooney, for example, early maturers, but they still ended up being top players. Excellent. That's a nice place to take a quick break. Um We'll be back in a moment to talk a bit more about football intelligence, Miguel's role and um, some work going forward. Welcome back to Three at the Back. So we're going to talk this half uh, a little bit more about football intelligence. Um, Miguel has joined Dr Pro as the head of football intelligence, um, which isn't a job role you get in too many organisations. Um, so Ben, could you tell us a bit, a bit, a bit more about that and um, and what that means in a wider context? Yeah, so this role is actually um, something that we've wanted to do really since I came into Top to Pro, you know, three and a half years ago now, and it, it's kind of born out of the idea that you know we really want to be able to support clubs um, in their analytics process, in their um, their use of data. But actually, you know, we're there to support them on the process level, and to to do that. We've got to understand it. You know, we've got to understand the challenges that football clubs face. And to really achieve that, we need people who've been there and done it because it's incredibly hard to teach those things unless you've been there and been at the coalface. And, you know, what we need to be able to do with with the way that we develop products or the way that we um, develop analytics, the models that we create, we need to be able to understand the concepts that the, the clubs are trying to develop, whether it's... Um, a playing philosophy or whether it's a way of quantifying um, a tactical concept that a coach is really their new manager for example has just come in and wants to really be able to describe this concept because it's key to his football philosophy we need to be able to support that we need to be able to develop our models and our analytics in that in that way we need to be able to present that in a platform that allows them to analyze the data in, in a really clean and efficient way but that ultimately supports the processes that they go go through so I think uh, bringing Miguel in was was something that I wanted to do for a while, and and it was about trying to identify the the, the right person to be able to deliver that strategy. Um, so you know the real kind of genesis of, of football intelligence as a as a very kind of um, holistic terminology for what uh, Miguel and his team will be able to deliver is really focused on that understanding of the game, understanding of of whether it's tactically coaching philosophies whether it's scouting processes, talent ID, academy player development, you know, you've already heard Miguel's extensive knowledge across those areas. Um, and then the ability to apply data um, and processes um, and technology to be able to support that. So that's something that, you know, we're really passionate about doing. You know, I hope anyone that's engaged with Octopro will, will see that that's a, a real passion. We say a lot around here that we want to be football first or we want to be sport first led. Um, you know, this is obviously very much focused on football, but we have the same kind of concepts in rugby and cricket as well, where we we need to understand the sport first, whether that's tactically, whether that's coaching led. We need to know what are the essence of the game that are either difficult to quantify or things that have been around forever that we've just never been able to quantify or never tried to. So that's really the key focus for us. And, um, and Miguel is, is the starting point for that and is something that we'll, we'll certainly develop 
But really, it's just a case of being able to support the clubs, uh, the leagues, the federations, the governing bodies in getting the most out of the data um, and the technology that, that they have and that they use on a daily basis, um, but doing it from that real core understanding of the sport. And I think it's in a, in a really interesting place because we know that you know, data's been around, you know, it's not secret. Clubs have been using it for, for a fair while. So we're seeing those clubs develop, evolve, progress, and it's nice to see different frameworks, processes, different concepts that are being utilised in there. And I suppose with your experience across different clubs and having scouted across different European countries as well, sort of understanding those sides of it as well and just how different clubs can be. I think it's important understanding the dynamic of a football club um, and within that football club, the processes, is it around the scouting piece, is it a recruitment piece, is it talent ID, or is it the coaching? Because if you understand how scouts work, how, how coaches work, then you'll understand what it needs to, if, what you need to present something to a scout or, or a coach. They want to see it in, in certain formats. They want to see it in things that's, that's easily digestible um, for them to make decisions. Good stuff. And in terms of that, that wider range, so obviously it's going to be, you know, we're working with teams in, I think it's sort of 15 to 20 different, different countries around the world. So those different setups there, I suppose it's been, you see some with a lot of, heavy investment in their backroom staff as well in some way you've got people that are taking on multiple roles as well and that must be a huge challenge for the guys in those clubs and that was you know a few years ago that would have been teams in in the championship for example as well yeah I mean I think we've certainly seen over the last five to ten years the evolution of, of data and technology and the investment in that across leagues as you mentioned you know the championship even four or five years ago wasn't investing as heavily because they didn't direct their resources in that way but now the championship is one of the most developed leagues in the world in terms of its use of data and technology um, and that's the same in, in a lot of other countries but again as we talked about earlier about the differences in style of football in leagues you know within every league there is a different emphasis on for every club on what they you know put their resources to and, and that's a really important thing for us to understand not every club not every um, director, football manager, coach, head of recruitment is going to value data and technology the same. And again, that's something that we're really passionate about. You know, the first podcast we did after the uh, after we brought Scout Seven in, we talked about the holistic nature of football and the holistic nature of making decisions, and that is no different now. You know, we talk a lot about data on this podcast, but actually, as we talked earlier about the scouting element. You know, we also have to be able to provide that level of, of, of analysis on scouting information. One of the big things that Miguel's team is working on you know, from the off is, is looking at how we marry scouting data generated from scouting reports with Opta event data. How do we marry those things up so that we can evaluate the holistic decision-making process for, for talent identification, for example, or even to be able to evaluate scouts' opinions against the data. You know, those things are really important, and that's one of the things that, that Miguel's team's looking at. And Miguel, when, from your experience of, of live scouting, have you always been... Um, how has that been in, sort of in your mind and understanding that this is part of a wider operation that requires consistency across you and the next scout and sticking to those, those club parameters, definitions? Has that been a real, a real, I don't want to say challenge in terms of a negative way, but has it been something that you've had to adapt your workflow perhaps to cater for? I think different clubs look at different things and, and different coaches look at, at different parts of the game. So some coaches need players, need players to 
have the essentials, be it physically, be it tactically. Uh, from my experience, different coaches look at different things. Some players, some coaches, and it happens at clubs that have changed of managers in mid-season. They've got a your the players you've signed in the summer, for example, the group of players you've got is a possession based, but the players that the when the manager's replaced, it's a high press and and it's a lot more um, about closing the ball down and less about possession. So there are challenges there. You, you have to be agile in how you think and the list of players you provide because you've got you need anything can happen in football. You you're looking at this type of player at this market in for the January window, but by the summer window, you might be looking at uh, different types of players, different styles of players, and that all depends on your league position as well. Well, I think one of the things that Miguel's team and the football intelligence team will be really focused on is with, we're so aware that there are very few clubs who have the resources to do long-term projects. You know, most of them are, are week-to-week, day-to-day, match-to-match, um, and I've been in that situation. I know what that's like. And it's very frustrating often because you want to do the longer term projects. You want to do an analysis of what it takes to get out of the championship. But often you don't have time because you've got a game Tuesday and then you've got a game Saturday. What uh, the football intelligence team will be there for is to support those longer term projects. You know, being able to do those those really scaled projects of um, even if it's you know squad usage or you know, playing styles or whatever whatever it is that, that we can help support clubs do, it will be very much focused on those longer term scaled um, case studies. And you've seen it in clubs in terms of, as soon as that, you know, in the ideal world it will be you've got the summer to, to do those longer term projects but in reality 101 things will come up and then once that season starts as well it's two games a week, reports, you've obviously got to, you know, the next game's obviously vitally important as well so it always does seem a, re- a real challenge on that side of things. So, um, and I always think that's the case with the the Opta Pro Forum as well. It's a nice chance to look beyond that. This is the next game. Here's some here's some ways that perhaps will come into play or can be applied in six months, a year, or will have an impact in that long as well. Yeah, and and that's always what we've wanted the forum to be about. Is it gives guys a, a, a time to come and and think outside the box. It gives them a day out of the training ground to think about what the future holds. The challenge for those guys is always how do I take that back and actually apply it now because it is a now business. It's a win now business. It's an it's a success business, and so we again have to do a really um, good job of being able to provide any of that content, any of those ideas into something that's tangible and, and can be used every day. I think that is a, a real challenge in terms of balancing that the short term and the long term, both inside a football club and sort of from outside. In terms of your scouting work, Miguel, has that been a case of that those workflows are structured through? So even in terms of identifying players, some are short term, some are longer term, some are, you know, have a different perhaps skill set that could be useful further down the line in a team's development. I think it's looking at it from a, also it's, it's going back to the younger players as well. Um, younger players have potential to improve. When will they develop? Do they need matches to develop or do they need to train with the squad to make themselves better? So instead of, instead of going out on loan. So I think if you assess the player and do you do diligence where he is in, in his, um, in his curve, in, in his potential, in his performance, um, you get a really good idea of, of what the plan is to do that. And I think it all, again, that all depends on where the club is, what the demands are. Do they are they a mid-table team? Are they a Champions League team? Are they looking for promotion from the Championship? It, it all depends on on where you are and what what team needs really. 
Perfect. Thank you very much. That is where we're going to going to wrap up now. So, um, Ben, Miguel, thank you very much, Miguel. Great to have you on for your debut. Thank you. Ben, thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Ryan. So, David Brooks and James Madison, the next podcast will be a different question for you both, so be prepared. Uh, And thank you very much for listening.